I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, we've been studying the book of Matthew for a number of months, and uh, we'll continue that, continue that this morning. Uh, some might say, well, is this really a resurrection message? Well, uh, uh, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday for me, uh, and uh, it's the Lord's Day, and so we're going to continue on, and I believe uh, we'll see the Lord Jesus Christ proving Himself to be real and alive to us, even as we look at this particular passage uh, this morning. There's one word that appears to nearly have fallen out of religious vocabulary, and that word is the word repentance. It finds room in the conversation of archaic spiritual ideas, but is deemed unsuitable for our sophisticated age. You know, the media would tag it onto the speech of a woeful, scraggly preacher, usually a fanatical preaching announcing the end of the world, a call to repent. Discussions among major religious bodies center around the need for social reform and even moral improvement, but scarcely is the call for repentance ever used. And yet central to the preaching of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ is the announcing of the kingdom of God and the necessity of repentance. And just as in the present day, the ancient world was not fond of this word either. Uh, they would gladly talk about spiritual issues and receive the benefit of God's general mercies, but balked when it came to the idea of repentance. They wanted the kingdom of God to break into the Roman world with a military and political might, not with spiritual transformation marked by repentance. So why is repentance so repulsive in the minds of men? Well, in the first place, it highlights the reality of a divine standard of moral practice that men just do not want to admit to. And so we have creative theological maneuvers that seek to generalize the law of God from the sound theology. And then secondly, repentance means that something is wrong with each of us. If we've got to repent, then there must be something wrong with me. And I've fallen short of God's demands. And we have a hard time admitting that we're wrong. And facing the fact of our sinfulness and separation from God is so painful that very few would like to make such an admission. But then finally, repentance calls for change. Radical change in our whole being. And so we pull back. Either we fear changing or we're satisfied with our present moral condition, or we love our sins so much to, uh, to repent or resent God demanding repentance, and we see no way to come to repentance. Whatever the case, we stand at the brink of eternal destruction apart from repentance. Jesus preached concerning the kingdom. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. In Mark 1.15, he said in Luke 13.3, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall likewise perish. Now the connection of our text with Matthew 11's discussion of John the Baptist continues here. Uh, we're ready for verse 16 in our study of this particular passage. And our Lord reaffirms to the struggling John that he is the Messiah. 
And seemingly in response to those that criticize John, Jesus Christ declares John's greatness. But we, he did not stop at that point. He declared that true greatness is found in relation to him as a kingdom citizen. True greatness is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And yet, it is as just this point that the crowds resisted. They found both John and Jesus to be fascinating. They were intriguing. They enjoyed much of what they had to say. They certainly profited by the miracles of Christ on their behalf. But they rejected the call to repentance. And so Jesus shows the folly of hearing and seeing the reality of the gospel without repentance. And the demand for repentance was not just for the ancient world. To refuse repentance is ultimately to reject the God of creation and His redemption. I wonder this morning, have you repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ? Let's look at two main ideas concerning the refusal of repentance. First of all, diffusing the impact of the gospel. Diffusing the impact of the gospel. Now nothing can really knock us off our feet like the gospel of Christ. Most of us have grown up under the preaching and teaching of the gospel. And as a result, we may not feel the shock of the gospel like those that never have heard it proclaimed. And yet we can battle against it just as strongly as those who hear it for the first time. The gospel reminds us of our helpless condition before God, which is offensive to our minds. This first century audience felt that offense. Consequently, they sought to diffuse the impact of the gospel and the call to repentance. They didn't mind listening to Jesus, at least to some of the things that he had said. But their goal was to avoid repentance because to repent means I have to admit that I have sin and that I'm helpless before God and to rely upon divine remedy for sin through Christ. To do that is to admit that He is God and we are not. And so in stubbornness of sin, we battle to nullify the gospel's message to us. We see this several ways. Number one by playing games with spiritual reality. By playing games with spiritual reality. Look at chapter 11, verse 16. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto the children, sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows, and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. One can almost hear Christ telling this little story, and along doing so, he kind of maybe uses the whiny voices of the complainers. Sometimes children can be kind of whiny in their, uh, in their talk, uh, just like they've been taught to be whiny, I guess. <laughs> you know, children have always shown creativity in coming up with games to pass the time away. It's interesting, as I listen to my own grandchildren's playing of had a lot of contact with them this past month, and uh, so uh, been able to just kind of sit uh, and listen to them play and hear them pretend to be someone. And someone will say, you be so-and-so and I'll be this person, you know? And, and they kind of pretend what they're doing. I don't know that I've ever heard my grandchildren do this, but I wouldn't put it past them. There was a little fellow, probably a preacher's boy, who was playing preacher, 
and he was conducting a funeral. Uh, he found a dead blue jay, and he promptly set out to give the dead bird a proper burial. And so he found an old shoebox to serve as a casket. His little brother came along with two other children. They served as the mourners, and he took the podium as the preacher. It was most likely his first venture into this world of preaching. And so serious they were about this little funeral that they invited an older lady in the neighborhood to come to their house for the funeral. The problem was they did not tell her who the funeral was for and that it was for a dead blue jay. So pretty soon she brings a cake to the boy's puzzled mother to help mourn their loss. But the funeral went on. Well, this is the kind of picture that Christ is painting here for us. Little children playing and pretending. First, the children play wedding. And they pipe a tune and they expect others to dance. And then they played funeral, singing a lament and expecting others to mourn. But the other children, literally others different from them, did not cooperate. Like any normal group of children, when plans are rejected, the complaining begins. But in reality, he wasn't really talking about children. He was talking about adults that had their minds made up of what the kingdom was to be like. And the preaching of John and Jesus differed sharply. And so like disgruntled children, this generation found it easier to whine to their criticisms and voice their discontent and play, rather than play the game. They wanted nothing to do with the kingdom and the demands for repentance that had been declared by John the Baptist and by Jesus Christ himself. So what do these complaints look like now? Uh, these are not uh, just complaints of this day in which Jesus lived. We have these complaints now. But what do their complaints look like in comparing to the complaints that we hear uh, in our own day? First of all, there's no accommodation for their whims. There's no accommodation for their whims. In other words, because the gospel does not leave them on the throne of their lives, so they want nothing to do with it. There's no accommodation for their whims. Secondly, there's no acceptance of their own pleasures and desires. And so they whine. When the gospel is preached and the, the repentance is called for, the rich young ruler was like this. He came to Christ with his agenda set. He just wanted to add eternal life to, to complete what he feared was missing in his agenda. And when Jesus called for a radical overturning of all of his plans and his dreams and his ambitions and his possessions, he went away sad. Christ called for repentance, but this man wanted the eternal blessings of God without change of life. I'm afraid that's the way many Christians operate today, too. They want the blessings of God without changing their lives. There's no accommodation for their whims. There's no acceptance for their own pleasures and desires. But there is accountability. There is accountability before God. Now, these people want to be their own pe person without telling them what to do or when to do it. And they, that includes God. God's not going to tell me what to do. Paul really gives us a clear picture of what repentance looks like. He called for repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, repentance is not only turning away from our sins and following our way of life, but it is a complete about-face, turning toward God and embracing Christ by faith. But men shy away from accountability with God. Repentance has to do with our whole attitude towards sin and God. It's the beginning of hatred of our sin and the love for the ways of God. And apart from repentance, we cannot know God and be a part of His kingdom. And so here we find they try to nullify the message by playing games with spiritual reality. Secondly, they, they nullify the message or diffuse the impact of the gospel by rejecting the testimony of God's revelation. Rejecting the testimony of God's revelation. Look at verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath a devil. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. You see, the whining and the complaining in this case was a rejection of the witness of John the Baptist concerning Christ. And then it was also the rejection of Christ Himself, the Messianic King. And to do this, the hearers had to devise their own complaints about this wit- the witness to the Redeemer and the Redeemer Himself. You know, it's not easy to reject God's revelation of His Son, especially when it comes in such obvious ways through John and the Lord. And though the minds are darkened by sin, there are still remnants of the divine image in man, and the conscience is smitten by truth. The darkness of the soul is reproached and exposed by the light of the truth. And so when a person is under the proclamation of the gospel, he will be compelled to do some creative rationalization in order to reject God's revelation of Christ in the gospel and yet still feel good about himself. Notice the accusations from this first century audience. They said John was a devil or a demon. Jesus is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now how does that same way of thinking imprison the minds of people today? Well, several things come to mind. First, they, people claim the Bible is offensive. They claim the Bible is offensive. Repentance is, is such an unpopular term. If you don't believe me, believe me, then sometime this week, go to work or go to your neighbor or tell some they need to repent. You will not be met with hugs and, and handshakes. You tell your co-workers, you need to repent. Uh, they're, they're not going to receive that, but well. If you doubt this, then look at some of the current popular materials on evangelism. The watered-down materials, that is. See how repentance is often either obscure or it's completely left out. They claim the Bible is offensive. Secondly, the deity of Christ is questioned. The deity of Christ is questioned. In an effort to reject the gospel revelation, some declare that Jesus is not what you Christians claim Him to be. You know, in recent years, there were attempts to question the deity of Christ. There was a book that was written some time ago. It's called In Search of the Historical Jesus. But actually, it's nothing more than an attempt to prove the Bible's history is unreliable. Or there was this 
group called the Jesus Seminar in which the participants would use colored beads to vote on the authenticity of the sayings and experiences of Christ as recorded in the New Testament. And as you might guess, very little in the New Testament Gospels was deemed trustworthy. And why was that? If Christ can be debunked, then men will not have to face their own sinfulness and helplessness before a holy God. They will not need to repent. They will not need to cast themselves upon Christ if indeed what the Bible says about Him is not true. And Then consider as well how various religions and social organizations relegate Jesus to the position as leader of a social reform movement, or sometimes He's made to be a poster child for political activities rather than recognizing Him as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. The deity of Christ is being questioned. Not too long ago in the news, a college student was reported of having a professor who said, take a piece of paper and write Jesus on it. And then put it on the floor and stomp on it. The deity of Christ is being questioned. And then, God is unfair and too restrictive people you'll meet and probably have already met who say the same thing. You know, what you believe is nice, but it's too restrictive. God is unfair. How could God, a God of love, allow the things that are happening today to happen? God is unfair and He's restrictive. And so they dislike God. Why? Because God is holy. They do not like God because He's a God of justice. They do not like God because He is Almighty God. He's able to destroy them when He pleases. Nor would they like Him if He were a weak being and of what but little power. They do not like God because He's an omniscient God. And so He sees all their wickedness. Natural men oftentimes dislike God in the exercises of His infinite sovereign mercy when it's exercised toward others. They dislike God because someone other than themselves is acknowledged to be God. Self-deification was not just a problem with Caesar. It's a common disorder of the human heart. And nothing exposes it more than the call for repentance. And so they play spiritual games and they reject God's testimony. But then thirdly, we find here that God's wisdom in the gospel will be justified. God's wisdom in the gospel will be justified. The world calls the gospel folly and foolishness, and the call to repentance is archaic. John was a demon. Jesus is a glutton, a drunkard, and he runs with the wrong crowd. But notice here at the end of verse 19, but wisdom is justified of her children. The day will come when divine wisdom shown through the unfolding revelation in the Old Testament and the ministry of John and the culminating revelation of Jesus Christ will be justified. Consider how this already has taken place. The Roman Empire had special cities with large Caesar cults. They weren't pizza places. Let's see if you're awake this morning. But they had places called that were large centers for the Caesar cults. And they said, Caesar is Lord. 
It was a common confession in Rome and Philippi and Thessalonica. And if you lived there, you were expected to make such a declaration if you had another religion that you practiced. And so Christians were mocked, they were cursed, they considered fools for refusing to confess Caesar as Lord. And it came to their own harm. But wisdom is justified because where is Caesar today? Where is the mighty Roman Empire today? I think of the communist leaders of the 20th century in the USSR and her vassal countries mocking Christ, the Christian gospel and the gospel preaching and the holy living. They agreed with Mao Zedong's remark when he said, religion is the opiate of the people. But where is the USSR? Where is Lenin and Stalin and Mao? But wisdom is justified of her children. But one day, all will be brought to a grand crescendo of, of, of the ages. Christ, the reigning King, will be revealed in all His glory. And then who will be championing the feminist movement? Who will be championing the gay-lesbian movement? The abortion industry, the anti-Christian movement in the media, and the moral, immoral practices of nations. But wisdom is justified of her children. And as for you, where will you stand on that grand day? Have you sought to diffuse the power of the gospel and its call to repentance? Have you made up your own excuses and downplayed the gospel message so you might continue down your own path? So here we see, first of all, diffusing the impact of the gospel. Secondly, the second thing we want to look at is the refusal to take seriously the call to repentance. The refusal to take seriously the call to repentance. Verse 20, Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Now the language and the context indicate that this next paragraph connects the previously considered. A spirit in the mind of whining and complaining at the gospel's call for repentance met with the strongest denouncing by Christ. And the root of the problem is exposed. The heart of unbelief, it's a refusal to repent at the revelation of Christ in the gospel. And the woes pronounced on the Galilean cities that saw so much of His work call us to take seriously the message of Christ in the the gospel. How can we find ourselves in the same position of facing the woes of Christ? First of all, if we have a failure to appreciate the works of cross, a failure to appreciate the works of Christ. There's a mention here of three cities. Chorazon, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were part of the northern Galilean area. Most of his mighty works were done, it says here. Verse 21 says, Woe unto thee, Chorazon! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Chorazon is likely the place of where the Sermon on the Mount was preached. So they had heard about the wonderful explanations of the kingdom citizenship. He healed the blind man at Bethsaida, and he fed 5,000 there as well. Christ lived in Capernaum for some time, and there he healed the centurion's servant, a paralytic, and then Peter's mother-in-law. 
And they followed a massive stream of people being healed of every imaginable disease and delivered from demons. He also raised Jairus' daughter while there in Capernaum. But like massive stone cliffs, the people of these cities remained unmoved by the miraculous works of Jesus Christ. They failed to see that God had come among them and they were not humbled by the sight and the view of Christ. And they were insensitive to Him because of their own sin. What we must see is the miraculous works of Christ as opportunities of God for those in this region to repent. This idea of mighty works, that's a term, really a technical term in the Gospels that refers to the displays of divine power for the purpose of attesting Christ as the Son of God and the Redeemer of sinners. These are not miracles for the sake of miracles, but demonstrations of power of God, the same power that would raise sinners from dead to real life. And while the theme of judgment runs strongly in this text, there is clearly the companion reality. God never announces judgment until He has first given us a full opportunity. And before the woes came opportunities to repent of sins and follow Christ, They had grand opportunities indeed because Christ walked among them. Can you imagine being in a place where Christ was walking among them and doing all these things, and yet they're rejecting Him? Consider the same principled divine woes applied to our day. Who stands in the position of severe judgment? Those who have little light or much light. Who has the greater condemnation? Those who hear the gospel regularly or those in heathen nations? It's the ones that have seen much of Christ through His gracious acts, His mercies, His preaching and teaching of the gospel, the witnesses of Christians, and the testimony of even Christian literature that have given greater opportunities and with it greater responsibilities. Can I warn you this morning? For unto whomsoever much is given of Him much of much is required. The sight of Christ's goodness, the sight of His works of kindness and more, so the sight of Christ calls for repentance. Paul questions us, or despisest thou the riches of His goodness and the forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing the, that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasureth up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Remember that occasion that disciples had fished all night without a catch, and Christ told them to put out into the sea again to let down their nets for a catch? Peter, the experienced fisherman, he explained to Christ that they had worked hard all night but came up with nothing. And tells us in Luke 5, And Simon answered and said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. But notice the next thing he says, Nevertheless, at thy word, at thy word, I will let down the net. First, I think it's important that we share the stories of Christ in our sharing of the gospel. Not only do such stories explain much about Christ, but they also display the glory of Christ and they reveal men's sinfulness. 
But also notice that we ourselves need to respond to the stories of Christ. Don't just simply file them away as nice stories, but see them as displays of Christ's glory and His call to repentance. There's a failure to appreciate the works of Christ. Secondly, there's a presuming upon God's mercy and kindness. There's a presuming upon God's mercy and kindness. In verse 20, uh, we read verse 21, but let me continue on in verse 22. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. If the miracles that had occurred in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom had taken place there in the Galilean region, there would have been a widespread repentance and Sodom would not have been destroyed by fire from heaven. And yet those miracles did not occur. Their light of understanding was dimmer. They consequently received the wrath of God for rejecting the light that God had mercifully given to them. They presumed upon God's mercy and His kindness, much, but much more, these Galilean cities presumed upon it as well. And this brings to us some interesting questions. Was God unjust in punishing eternally those in Tyre and Sidon that did not have the same privileges as those in Capernaum? And also, if the Lord, by omniscience in understanding all contingencies here, uh, knew that they would have repented, then should He not have provided more adequate miracles and acts of divine goodness so they could repent? Was God unjust to them? Now, such a detailed discussion about the level of divine mercy shown to various peoples is really not that important here. It's really more of an attempt to bypass the responsibility for repentance bound up in what God has done among us. Let me just give you a, couple, a few things here. God's might versus hardness of heart. God's might versus hardness of heart. The miracles in Capernaum demonstrated not only God's might through Christ, but also clearly demonstrated the callousness and the hardness of their hearts. Their rejection of repentance in light of Christ proved that their love for sin was greater than their love for God. They were harder than more, the more notable cities that Christ identified here. And they prided themselves in being religious, religious. Notice also God is not obligated to show mercy. God is not obligated. He's not obligated to show mercy to anyone. Though He does. And he does it in many ways, some more and some less. Matthew 5 says that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and his sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. But God is not obligated to show mercy. Thirdly, God does not work equally for every person. That's a divine prerogative. The amazing thing is that the thrice holy God has shown mercy to anyone. That's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 9, rebuking men for finding fault with the way that God displays mercy. And then fourthly, there is a just con condemnation. There is a just 
condemnation. Those of Tyre and Sidon who were common subjects of the prophets in the so, uh, Sodom were justly condemned as they followed the dictates of their hearts in rejecting the light that God had given them. And then fifthly, there are degrees of reward and punishment. There are degrees of reward and punishment. Those who have had more light have a greater responsibility. Now, I think that's sobering to us who have received so much in both teaching and divine kindness. The question is, are we presuming upon God's kindness or are we ignoring the need to repent? And then, not only the failure to appreciate the works of Christ and presuming upon God's mercy and kindness, but thirdly, seeing no need for repentance. Notice verse 24, But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Christ declared that in the day of judgment for these Galilean cities that had so much light through yet though Christ uh, uh, through Christ yet they rejected him they refused repentance these cities have their cousins among us I wonder this morning, are you one that has heard the gospel and seen the evidences of God's goodness and yet you've refused to repent of your sins and turn to Christ? So what is involved in repentance? Well, repentance involves four things, I believe. We could put it down. You come to a right view of yourself. You see yourself as you really are. A sinner who needs the Lord. Have the right view of yourself. Secondly, you have a right fear of God. If you do not trust Christ, there will be consequences. And number three, you decisively choose God's way rather than your own. And then fourthly, you arise and you go to God through Christ. That's repentance. You come to a right view of yourselves. You have a right fear of God. You decisively choose God's way rather than your own, and you arise and you go to God through Christ. Have you repented of your sins? Have you turned to God through faith in Christ? The gospel calls for your repentance. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is of no good to you unless you receive it as a part of the gospel. This day has no meaning unless you receive the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was meant for you. And He calls you to repent of your sin, repent of your own way, and come to God His way. Repentance stands at the doorway to the kingdom. Will you enter in? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You so much this morning for the plain teaching of God's Word. And we pray, Lord, that as we consider the call to repentance, that we'll not just be saying, well, that's nice, and that's good for some people, but not for me. Lord, there are going to be serious consequences for those who reject the Gospel. And I pray that this morning each one here knows Jesus Christ, but there may be someone that does not. And they need to come, come to you today. 
And we know that there is room at the cross. And we pray, Lord, that they will come, turn from their own ways, and turn toward you today. Help us to be faithful in giving forth this message for those of us that have this relationship with you. And may Jesus Christ be praised and lifted up in our lives as we seek to win others to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your songbooks this morning. Turn to 329. 329. God's spoken to your heart in any way this morning. We invite you to come, perhaps here, kneel here in prayer, or whatever you do, don't reject what God has given to us. The cross upon which Jesus died is a shelter in which we can hide. And its grace so free is sufficient for me, and deep is its fountain as wide as a sea. As we stand, as we sing on that first verse, you come, meet the Lord in prayer.